Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. In health news, as winter approaches, public health officials are warning that other viruses could be coming back with a vengeance. COVID is obviously concerned with new variants always on the horizon, but flu cases are higher than usual for this time of year. And then there are worries about respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. Many infected children are becoming severely ill because they have little immunity, either because it has waned or because they were not exposed to these viruses before the pandemic. Most of these cases are expected to be mild, thankfully, but the sheer number of them is what causes the concern. It could overwhelm hospitals, and we're starting to see higher number of pediatric visits. For more on all this, we'll speak to Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at the New York Times. The concern is, is very real. As you said, we, for a couple of years now, have not really seen a lot of respiratory infections beyond COVID because the coronavirus really sort of took over our lives. We were all wearing masks and social distancing and not going into work or to school. And so it made a real difference to how we interact with other people. And most people didn't actually get very sick from respiratory viruses. This year, all those viruses are back with a vengeance, as one expert put it. So what that means is people are getting sick with all three of these viruses. The coronavirus is coming back and it's going to keep picking up over the winter, which we knew and expected to happen. And the flu, you know, generally happens between October and, and December and January or so, all the way through March sometimes. But this year we're seeing it earlier than usual and the numbers are higher than we would expect for this time of year. And then RSV, yeah, the third one you mentioned, the third virus of that triple-demic. If you're not a parent of a young child, you may not have thought very much about it, but it actually can be pretty serious for kids under five and for people uh, older than 65. So now we've got three viruses that can all make people yeah. sick, and each one on its own may not be a huge problem, but all three at the same time, that's a real problem. Yeah, and that's the case right here, is we're likely to see that most cases of COVID, flu, and RSV would be mild. Obviously, there are severe cases that do pop up all the time, but we think they might be mild, but it's a numbers game. We're just going to expect a lot of people to get sick, and then that's what's going to overwhelm hospitals and those hospital systems there. So tell me a little bit more about RSV, though, just because I'm unfamiliar with it. As you mentioned, uh, people that have young kids are probably more familiar with it, but it seems to be kind of like COVID flu-like type symptoms that people get. 
Yeah, it's very similar. You know, it's respiratory syncytial virus, so it affects the respiratory pathway for the most part. And so the symptoms look very similar to cold, to flu, to everything else that affects that system. It might be hard to know, you know, whether your kid or, you know, an older person in your life has that virus or something else. There are tests that can distinguish between all three of the viruses. And in fact, now there are tests that can do all three at the same time. COVID, flu, and RSV. So, you know, RSV is, is really an issue for kids under five who, you know, have not had a lot of exposure to the virus. This is also true for flu. You know, we're so used to thinking of the coronavirus as not a big deal for young kids, and that's true for the coronavirus, but it's not for flu and RSV. We adults have all had the flu and been exposed to RSV many, many times. So we have a lot of immunity that's built up over our years. But little kids, you know, kids either born the last couple of years or or kids who were really young when the pandemic started have not had a chance to, you know, have their bodies be really exposed to this virus. So what doctors are seeing is that kids are coming in with RSV with pretty severe symptoms, more severe than, you know, you would otherwise have seen in years before the pandemic. And so that's a real cause for worry. I do want to, you know, say that most of those kids are recovering and getting out of the hospital pretty quickly. That's, That's what the doctors are saying so far. And so that's the good news. But the bad news is that they are coming to the hospital. And uh, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, something like 70% of the beds available to kids in hospitals nationwide are already full. And it's only October. Let's check in with COVID right now. As we know, COVID is the game of variants as we've all gone through very recently. BA5 was the big variant that was last causing concern, but there's two more on the block right now, BQ.1.1 and XBB. These are the two that are starting to surge in other parts of the world. There's a few cases here in the U.S. Again, these just seem to be a lot better at evading immunity. That's correct. So, you know, until BA5, BA5 was the one that was the most immune evasive. And then these are taking it even further. And, you know, that's we're probably going to see more and more of that because until now, the virus didn't have to work too hard to infect people. You know, there were enough people who had not been infected. But now all of us have so much immunity that the virus is under pressure to become more and more able to get around our immunity. So we're going to see these variants come up like BQ 1.1 and XBB that are pretty good at um, yeah. evading a lot of the immunity that we have. And, you know, we're hoping there's still enough commonality with the previous versions of the virus that most people are still going to get just very mildly ill. But again, this is, you know, a numbers game, as you said, and it's really of concern for immunocompromised people, for older adults yeah. who, despite many, many boosters, still have problems really creating a a strong immune response. And in all of this, right, this is to raise awareness. Um, Obviously, public health officials want people to get their COVID shots, their COVID boosters, flu shots. There's no vaccine or anything for RSV specifically, but I know there are some things in the work, but this is really the call to action here, at least on this front. Very important. Yes. I mean, even though these variants that are coming up for the coronavirus are immune evasive, you know, getting a booster means your antibody levels will go up overall. So it's still your best bet at fighting off an infection. And certainly for the flu, you know, we've seen many, many, many years now that even if the flu virus is not, the vaccine is not perfectly matched to the variant of flu that's going to be circulating, it'll make you less sick and it will probably make you sick for a shorter amount of time. And even if it's not for yourself, it's a really good idea to get it for the vulnerable people around you. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye out on these numbers. Uh, Flu season seems to have started early. We're starting to see those numbers tick up. And again, just uh, another concern with COVID and RSV out there. Apoorva Mondavili, reporter at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure.
first in education news, we got the results from the 2022 National Assessment of Educational Progress, and it's showing the largest drop in math scores ever, with declines in every state. Reading scores didn't fare much better either, with the largest drop in fourth grade reading since 1990. Educators say the pandemic has exacerbated existing gaps and tech issues hampered remote learning. The big concern with all this is that it could take years for students to recover. For more on all this, we'll speak to Ben Chapman, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. These federal test scores do bookend the pandemic, as you say, and provide a a clear picture of what happened with American academics over the last three years as the uh, school system was bombarded with closures labor shortages, behavioral problems in schools, and trauma from the pandemic generally. The test scores show the largest drop in math scores ever, with fourth and eighth grade students in nearly every state showing significant declines. They also showed sweeping drops in levels of reading proficiency, with a plunge in scores in that category, uh, reversing uh, three decades of gains and bringing the average reading score back to what it was in um, 1992. So, you know, this is a historic drop in scores that really touch every state in the country. Yeah, and when we're looking at these scores, we're looking at fourth grade math and reading, eighth grade math and reading. That's what kind of what we're focusing on here. And, you know, focusing on reading just a little bit more. We're talking about fourth graders. We saw these huge drops there as well. And, you know, we talk a lot about third grade reading, right, where you really need a good basis there because that sets you up for the rest of what you're going to do throughout school. So coming out of third grade reading into fourth grade reading, we're seeing these drops. And the big concern that it's going to take years to catch back up. That's right. Fourth grade and third grade reading, it's regarded as a critical time in a child's uh, academic development. By the time a student finishes third grade, they should be reading well enough so that they can read uh, to learn other subjects. And that's because starting in fourth grade, Schools start to use the written word to communicate information about other subjects in school. So at that point, if a student is not reading well enough, it can have a snowballing effect on their education. And these federal tests also measure students at eighth grade for their reading and math skills at that point in time, because that's a critical year for preparing for high school. And the level of proficiency a student has in eighth grade will sort of indicate how they're going to do in high school and beyond. And we do have some research from other other places in the world that have experienced long-term disruptions to learning there was a, uh, a study of a teacher's strike in uh, South America that was undertaken, um, and it has been um, parsed by researchers, and um, they've determined there that the lack of schooling that those students got sort of followed them through their academic career and then in, as they enter the workforce. So the belief is that there could be a long shadow to these uh, falling test scores. Are there any states that fared better than others? We saw that Utah was the only state where a drop in eighth grade math score wasn't statistically significant, although there was still drops there. Any highs and lows when we look across the country? That's right. Well, as you point out, Utah was the only state that did not show a statistically significant decline in eighth grade math. 
As in um, previous years, Massachusetts scored at the top of the states in a number of categories, I believe in three of the four categories that were measured. And New Mexico scored at the bottom in all four categories. Los Angeles was the only place, city or state, that showed an increase in um, eighth grade reading scores. And um, they're to be commended for that. There was no other place that showed a gain in any of the categories. So there it is. Los Angeles was the only one. And reasons for all this. There's different reasons all over the place. Uh, A lot of them say, you know, there's just the existing gaps were exacerbated because of what was going on. The pandemic was a difficult time. Technology struggles during these periods of remote learning. This is what we're hearing across the uh, way. And I'm sure it's a wake up call to a lot of administrators out there. It certainly is being, um, you know, heralded as a wake-up call, and the causes for these declines and the solutions are still being debated. There are folks who say that school closures were very detrimental to student learning, but then um, this data doesn't really support that. Um, There's no clear connection there. And there are also mental health problems and behavioral problems that have hit schools, attendance declines, labor shortages, you know, a a number of things happening simultaneously. So it's going to take researchers some time to figure out exactly what happened here and how to how to right the ship. Ben Chapman, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. Have a nice night. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. Juan Gabriel. Juan Gis. Selena. Selena. Celia Cruz. Azúcar. Harold G. La Bichota. Christina Aguilera. Ex-Tina. Just to name a few. We're serving the whole story. From rags to riches. And all the tea in between. I'm Liliana Vasquez. And I'm Joseph Carrillo. And we're the host of Becoming an Icon Season 2. Guess who's back in the house? And we're bringing you even more stories behind the world's biggest stars in Latin music. Certified Latin royalty. Consider us your star sleuths, your chisme besties, digging beneath los mejores éxitos to bring you everything you didn't know about your favorite Latin icons. Hey, you know what, my boo? You're my favorite icon. Aw, Joseph! Listen to Becoming an Icon, part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just in time for Halloween, why do so many people take delight in disgusting things? Disgust itself 
is an emotion of avoidance, originally concerned with possibly harmful foods, but it has evolved to include other things such as violations of morals or cultural rules. But why do disgusting things hold our attention so much? It could be because of something called benign masochism. For more on the allure of disgust, we'll speak to Bradley Irish, Associate Professor of English at Arizona State University. Disgust fundamentally is an emotion of aversion and avoidance. It tells us to keep our distance from things that might harm us. And scientists theorize that it first emerged as a safeguard against eating toxic food because many animals actually display a similar distaste mechanism. But in the course of human development, the emotion came to regulate our behavior relative to all sorts of things that might put us in contact with dangerous pathogens. Things like uh, how we relate to hygiene, animals, disease, bodily injury, corpses, even contact with strangers. And what's really even more interesting is that it seems to have also evolved to govern not just things that are viscerally harmful to our physical bodies, but also things that are deemed symbolically harmful to our collective bodies. Things like violations of morals and sacred values. And this is all part of the same biological and psychological process. And evidence even suggests that being exposed to morally offensive things can cause our stomach to clench as if we were preparing to literally vomit a harmful substance out. Yeah, you constantly so, people, people here say, you know, say things like, well, that makes me sick that, you know, I, I can't keep watching that, all that. Right. And that's, it's the same process. You know, disgust originally emerged as something to help us literally vomit out something that we've eaten that is harmful to us. And it goes all the way through to moral senses now where we might say we're disgusted by an act of racism. Yeah, you made mention in the article that that's why disgust is often known as the gatekeeper emotion, exclusionary emotion. It helps us in that way. Now, that all makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Now, the other side of things, though, but why does it capture our attention so well? Why do we take pleasure even in seeing some of this stuff? Yes, so that's a really important question. And it comes down to the fact that scientists have long recognized that we have an intentional bias towards threatening and dangerous cues. And this makes a lot of sense from an evolutionary standpoint because it helps to protect us from things that might cause us harm. And this actually seems to be particularly the case with disgusting things because there's evidence that disgusting stimuli capture our attention for even longer than threatening stimuli do. And in general, this is, again, because our brains want us to pay close attention to things in the world that might expose us to dangerous pathogens so we know not to get too close. So in effect, even as we're being told to create distance from these substances, they're still captivating our attention. So that's why we're drawn to them. But in terms of the enjoyment, that's an even uh, larger question, right? And it's not simply the disgusting things can capture our attention. We also, in some situations, can enjoy them. And for hundreds of years, in fact, philosophers and aesthetic theorists have wrestled with the fact that seemingly off-putting things can cause us delight. And one way to account for this is that humans generally like to seek novelty and sensation, and we even like the thrill of ostensibly negative emotions when we know that we're protected from actual harm. So that's why some people like to watch really scary movies or ride roller coasters, because they get to experience the thrill, but they're not actually <laughs> going to be harmed. And in the case of disgust, it's theorized that we might like the sensation of coming in contact with disgusting things if we know we won't really be harmed by them, which is why we might take a perverse delight in watching someone on a reality show eat extremely repulsive food. Right. It also, I mean, it confirms it for you in your brain, right? You're watching how uncomfortable they might be or grossed out they might be, and you're like, yep, that's exactly why I'm staying away from that. So it kind of confirms exactly. that in your brain, and, and you love it, right? It makes you feel like you were right about it. it you know, all, all that uh, really works. I think some psychologists, they call it uh, benign masochism. Uh, uh, yeah, yes, exactly. looking, looking out for that. 
Yes, that's exactly right. So the idea is that this is a trait that that many humans have. We are, as I said, sensation-seeking in general. So it helps account for the fact that why, for example, some people like to eat extremely hot food and like the actual pain (laughs) of eating a a ghost pepper or whatever it may be. They know that it's not really going to harm them, but they still get that thrill from that sensation. And disgust seems to work in the same way. Yeah, I could tell you uh, personally, I've uh, scrolled through many a video just watching people over and over eat all the ghost peppers and chili eating competitions. They're just kind of fun to watch the, the extremism of it. And you also write about how this goes way back, you know, even into Shakespearean times, you know, with uh, uh, different things that uh, people used to do way back in the day, uh, as far as like, you know, public executions and leaving the bodies hanging there like this it has been with us for a long, long time. Yeah, that's actually my area of expertise is the early modern period in England. And one of the things that I found in my research on disgust is that there was this similar visual culture of disgust in which people were encouraged to fix their eyes on things that seem ostensibly disgusting. So people attended public executions, which sometimes got very gory. There were open anatomy theaters where people could go watch doctors perform autopsies for scientific purposes. And early modern apothecaries even used human flesh in their medical compounds and had parts of charred corpses hanging in their shop. So people were indeed accustomed to looking at things that we would find repulsive. But what's vital recognizes that they weren't simply desensitized to these things. Records show that the people were also horrified by the violent yeah. spectacles of execution. They uh, expressed how much they enjoyed watching public autopsies, but they commented on how bad the smell was. And they mentioned that seeing dead corpses in an apothecary's shop was a really exciting thing, but it made them feel ill. So it's not simply that people four or 500 years ago had a different disgust threshold, though they undoubtedly did, but they were encouraged to fix their eyes on something, even as it made them feel like turning away. And it's exactly the same thing that we experience today, whether it's reality shows or scary movies. Bradley Irish, Associate Professor of English at Arizona State University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.